John chapter 2, 1 through 12. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. And that is the word of God. Good morning to you. I'm Joel, one of the pastors, and we're in a series right now called No Middle Ground. Uh, I know some of you brought back your, uh, your folder there that says No Middle Ground. Will you raise those up? Um, if you're not holding that up and you were here last week, mm, um, <laughs> there are some other sheets for you to write some notes on. Go throw that in there. But take advantage of the opportunity to, uh, to write some notes out and to really see what God's teaching us. I want to remind you of what the purpose of this series is. Um, I'm trying to help us all be able to walk out of this place and to simply tell other people who Jesus Christ really is to us, right? I, I grew up, I remember with my father being a pastor, an amazing teacher of the word. And then I started going to some other churches in college and stuff. And when I went away and um, I often would walk out and I was like, man, they knew a lot, but I never knew what to tell other people about what I learned. And we want to make it as simple enough for you to be able to walk out of this place and go, man, this is what the Word of God says. So that's what we're getting to do today because here Jesus steps into his first miracle that we see, that we understand. So he's going to start off this, this miracle ministry, and it's remarkable to be able to see because here's, here's Jesus Christ. He's in Cana. Cana is a place that's nearby where he grew up. It's not that far away. Uh, probably about 12 miles or so. It's, they, they would have known each other. So there are some common relationships. We certainly can assume that because of his mom being present as well. And Jesus is stepping in, and he's going to turn water into wine. Now, let me go ahead and just talk about this as well also. Um, sometimes we can struggle with the miracles of God, right? We can go, man, do we really believe? Anybody here just said, man, I believe that God is a God of miracles, Yes. So we can struggle with it, though, if we, really, we know what to say, but do we really live as though we believe it? Um, no, if you understand, if you believe in one miracle, I'm going to give you the chapter and the verse. If you believe in this one miracle, everything else is easy. I'm going to give it to you. All right? Genesis 1.1. God created the heavens and the earth. 
Amen? If you believe in that, turning water to wine ain't nothing. Yes, my mom just cringed. Double negative. I did it. All right? Turning water to wine ain't nothing. Walking a blind, uh, taking a blind man and letting him see, helping a lame person walk again, those things are nothing. If you believe that God created the heavens and the earth, then nothing else really is significant. I mean, that is such an enormous thing. So here's Jesus stepping into his ministry and performing a miracle. Now, this is going to be a big thing. We, we've got uh, roughly, I think, about 37 miracles that we have in the gospel that Jesus performed. Now, it does also tell us that Jesus performed many other signs and wonders amongst them. We don't have all of those right there in front of us, but we know there's 37 of them. And in the Gospel of John, we see this very first one, um, this first miracle that matters so much because Jesus is letting everyone know, man, even creation obeys him. Even creation obeys him. And he steps in and he knows it's about to reveal his glory. It's, if someone says, what's the significance? Because I want you to walk out of this place, and you're going to walk through John chapter 2 with people, and you're going, man, right away we see the significance of Jesus, and he reveals his glory. He reveals his power. He reveals his strength. And he's about to bring joy to a wedding in which there is going to be shame. Now, um, I hope you already know that it was a shame and honor culture. It was a very, if, if somebody came to a wedding or any activity or festivity in your home, you were expected to be able to provide for them for the entirety of it. A wedding feast would have been for seven days. This was the third day, and they're already out of wine. Yes, it was fermented. Some people are like, it wasn't fermented. Yes, it was. That made it healthy for a lot of them because of the water that they were drinking, etc. But it, yes, it was fermented, and here they are. They're already running out of wine. That's significant for us to understand on the third day. And so Jesus is going to do some miraculous things. He's got five disciples with him at this time. He's close to where he grew up, and he steps in. Now, I, I also, I wish I would have known more about the relationship between Jesus and, and his mom. Um, because what we know, and we can, we can read between the lines a little bit, but we, we don't want to add to Scripture. We don't want to remove from Scripture. This is what we know. It tells us, it's the third day at a wedding in Cana. The mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited with his disciples, so he shows up. The wine runs out. Jesus' mom looks at him and says, they have no more wine. Jesus says, woman, what does that have to do with me? Now, have any of you looked at your mom and said, woman? <laughs> Anybody? You haven't because you would not be here if you had. That's how I grew up, Right? I grew up very much deep, deep south, you know, the whole, it's a very, very real thing. I brought you in the world, I'll take you out of the world, and all that type of thing. Um, you don't look at your mom and say it, but I got I to gotta let you know, this was an endearing quality. This was not harsh. Jesus was not being harsh here. If you look at the language and what it really meant. So know that. I, I make light of it sometimes because if we did that today, it wouldn't go well. But this was not a harsh thing. He says, woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, let me go ahead and... Uh, stop right here. Two verses for you to write down. John 7, 30. This is, it is significant that Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. John seven thirty. so they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him. Why? 
because his hour had not yet come. Jesus knew what that meant for his hour to come. It means that he would be the perfect lamb of God giving a sacrifice for all people. He says it again, John chapter 8, verse 20. There's numerous other places, by the way, but here's where it says no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So now in his first miracle where he's going to reveal his glory, he looks at his mom and says, Mom, what, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. So being the mom that she is, um, you know, the wine runs out. Mother Jesus said to him, they have no more wine. Jesus says, what does this have to do with me? My hour's not yet come. And so then his mom being that type of, I, that's how I wish I wouldn't have known the dynamic. She just looks at the servant and says, do whatever he says. And she leaves. Looks at the servant and says, do whatever this man says. Do whatever he tells you to do. We know that there's six stone jars there, each with 20 to 30 gallons of, uh, of water. That purification ceremony is important because of the purification that now Jesus is also representing and going to be part of for all people, that purification. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, right? They fill them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out, take it to the master of the feast. They took it, the master of the feast, toasted the water, now become wine. He tasted it. This is also crucial. Every wedding would have had an MC. A master, a master of the festivities, uh, somebody who would have hosted the entirety of it and really for that week made sure everything goes exactly the way that it needs to go. And so here's this person, he's accustomed to doing this on a regular basis and he tastes this wine. He's like, whoa, 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 this is the very best I've ever had. Who saves this for the end? You say you, you use the good stuff first. Once people get a little tipsy, you use the bad stuff. But the, this is the best that I've ever had, and now it's coming out. What honor have you shown us by handling this situation in the way that you have? What honor is there? And one of the coolest things about this, this miracle are the two people that it helped the most, the bride and the groom, don't even know that it's taking place. They don't even know that it's happening. The master of the feast didn't know that it was happening. The servants did. It's very clear that it lets us know. The servants obviously knew what was taking place. But the two people who were helped out the most didn't even know that it was happening. How many times has the Lord saved us from something in which we fell short and we don't even know about it? We don't even, we're not even aware of what God. Friends, we do not understand the magnitude of which God has saved us. And to run out of provisions at one of these feasts was a big thing. They couldn't take off and be like, hey, honey, run down the street to Meyer. There were no Myers at that point. It was at least 10 years later, right? There were no Myers. There were no grocery stores. You couldn't be like, hey, here's a $100 bill. Go down the street. Get me some. Here's some denarii. Take care of this. Didn't happen that way. They ran out of what they had. I mean, if you look at the history of it, the family of the bride could have brought a lawsuit against the family of the groom for not having enough. That's how significant this was. And yet here's what Jesus does, is Jesus ends up turning humiliation into triumph. And another way to think about it is that Jesus' miracle represented a need that they could not meet for themselves. Jesus did for them what they could not do for themselves. 
Jesus did for them what they could not do for themselves. That is a picture of what Jesus has done for us. He has done for us what you cannot. Friends, you can't be nice enough. You can't be kind enough. You can't be good enough. Jesus has done for us what we cannot do for ourselves. He has paid the ultimate price. That means we have victory in the name of Jesus. That's why we say it, because he has done for us what we could not do for themselves. He does for the bride and the groom what they could not do for themselves. And he doesn't serve the cheap stuff. He serves the very best, something that they could never have imagined. He knows. He knows that when he steps in and he does this miracle, um, everything's about to blow up. Things about to get a lot bigger. They're going to look at him and go, whoa, 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 whoa. this guy controls nature. They, they may not know in that moment what happened, but trust me, the word got out. And they're going, hang on a second here. This guy, I'm telling you, we had the stone jars. We filled them up with water. I'm the one who poured the water. This is the servant speaking. I'm the one who poured the water in. And now all of a sudden, the master of the feast is going, this is the best one I've ever had. You should have been there. It was amazing. The word got out. This guy controls nature. And Jesus did what they could not do for themselves. And I hope that you recognize he has done for you what you cannot do for yourself. But there are so many of us settling for less than what Jesus intends. Less than what Jesus desires. What Jesus brings is so much better than what we previously had. We had cheap wine, now we had the best wine. Don't settle for cheap wine. Another way of thinking about that, that's, that's why Christians look different than, you're supposed to look different than the rest of the world because we know that we believe in the authority of the word of God, yes or no. So if you believe in the authority of the word of God, you're looking at other people and they want to live according to their own desires and their own flesh and their own will and their own emotions and their own feelings. And you're going, yeah, I get why you want to do that because we're all sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. But... I'm telling you right now, what God has to offer is greater than what you desire. What God has to offer is greater than what you sometimes desire for your own flesh, for your own will. That's why I look at the world differently and they go, well, you don't have a right to tell me what I want to do. I'm like, I, I'm not going to tell you what you necessarily want to do or what you desire to do. But what I am going to tell you is that the word of God and the will of the Father is always greater. It is better wine than your cheap stuff. It's greater. Some of us, some of us don't recognize that Jesus gives us the good stuff. Here's how I would describe it. I, um, I grew up, uh, 1973 pickup truck, mustard yellow that honked every time I turned left, right? I've thought about that before. And it was real wheel drive, of course. It was a V8. It got six miles a gallon. It was fantastic. But that's when gas was only 89 cents a gallon. Anybody remember those days? Let's go, right? Please, God. Um, so I filled up the other day. It was $412,000. Um, <laughs> So here, all of a sudden, you got this, and I would, I would occasionally, because it was real-world drive and it had no weight in the back, I lived in Georgia, so what would I occasionally do? Burnout. How would you know? Um, somebody's been doing it in the parking lot. No more. Um, so 
I would burn out, and then my tires would get, what, bald, and they were just nasty, and I didn't have any money. I didn't really register well. I don't have enough money to buy new tires, and so I would take those tires, tires that were intended to go 30,000 miles, and I was convinced I could get 100,000 miles out of them. I, they were beyond bald, right? Um, I mean, they were just, and it was, I would get a, a puncture in them really easy. Um, the guy at the tire place knew my name because back then it was five bucks like, for them to put a little plug in a tire and a little patch. And he's just like, Joel, what'd you, they, you, at some point you got to get a new tire. Here's why I tell you the story. It's for some reason, I think that in America, this is what a lot of us have made Jesus out to be. We think that he's here to fix the punctures in your life. That you, He's the tire shop, your tire. And hey, it's worn out. And whenever it busts, you go up and he helps to patch it. And then you just keep going. But in time, your tire is so worn out that it, it, it will impact the type of terrain that you go on. It certainly will impact the type of driving you can have in the winter with snow and ice. It will impact so much of how you even live life. Like, don't go too fast. Don't take corners fast. It might have a blowout. That won't be good. And we think that Jesus does that, that he's going to take what is and simply fix it. That's not how God works. You're like, really? Wait, people came up to me after the first service. They're like, I've never thought of it this way. That's not, just hear me out, that's not how God works. He doesn't take your worn out, nappy old tire that's already been patched eight different times and says, hey, let me throw another patch on it. He doesn't work that way. That's the way you work. What Jesus does is when you surrender your life to him, he gives you a brand new tire. He doesn't keep fixing the old. He says, no, I'm going to give you the best tire you've ever imagined. You are now a new creation in Christ. You can, I have a desire for you to go places you never dreamed of going so that my name would be known, so that I may receive glory. I'm not going to simply patch your old life. I'm going to give you a new life. That's the power of Jesus. But we don't live that way. We don't understand that Jesus Christ is stepping in to do for us what we can never do for ourselves. And so in relationships and in marriages, we struggle because we keep living based. Man, I remember when, though, last year, this is what you did to me. And so we never entered that relationship. We want to patch an old relationship rather than recognizing that God can build in a new relationship. Because most of us would even say, God can do something great in me, but I don't know about them. He can redeem and renew me, but I don't know about them. No, God did not simply come to patch your mistakes, to patch your life. He came to give you a new life. We don't get that. Are you following me? Some of you need to embrace for your marriages and for your careers and for your jobs. You need to embrace the fact that God is giving us a new life. He's not just patching up the old one. So this is what he does in this passage. He's telling us, no, I'm going to do for them what they could not do for themselves, and I'm going to give them something greater than they could ever imagine. Now, there's a lot of here, a lot more here. But when we look at this passage, he turns shame and humiliation into triumph. He does for them what they could never do for themselves, and he gives them his very best. Well, that's just the first part. 
So you're going to look at your friends and be like, man, what we learned, here's his first miracle. He's revealing his glory. But we're also going to learn that he does for us the very thing that we could never do for ourselves. Even when we don't know we need it, he's doing for us. And he's giving us his very best. Wow, that's pretty awesome. And then, John chapter 2, verse 13 and following, it says, it's almost time for the Jewish Passover, and now what he does is he's cleansing the temple. Now, if I tell you, I look at John chapter 2, and I see three movements. So I'm going to give you these movements for you to scribble down. It's very, very simple. Each movement is about three words. What you see is Jesus reveals himself and his power. That's Jesus reveals himself. That's the wedding at Cana. It's his first miracle. He's revealing himself. Then he cleanses the temple He reveals himself, cleanses the temple, and then he reveals that he is the temple. Reveals himself, cleanses the temple, reveals that he is the temple. That's the movement of John chapter 2. You got it? You wrote it down? Good? Good. We're not here for you just to watch and be entertained, right? We're here to participate in the learning and the absorption of the Word of God so that we can go speak to other people, so that we can live out the Great Commission, and we're going to let everybody know that we have been saved, that we are not the old tire anymore, but that it's been patched. We're a new creation in Christ Jesus. So we've got to get this stuff. Jesus reveals himself. He then cleanses the temple, and then he reveals he is the temple. And this second portion of it, of cleansing the temple, um, some of you don't get hung up on the fact The Gospels all speak about this. It all shows this being the last week of Jesus' life. He comes in, Palm Sunday, Passover, the next day he goes and cleanses. And people get so distracted by the fact of like, this is out of order. What do we do? Chronologically, some people are like, there must have been two times. I I do not believe that there were two times. I think this is the same story because then it talks about it being Passover, right? I think just John said, hey, this is where I'm putting it in the story. Don't get hung up on that because the story is the same. It's almost time for the Jewish Passover. There it is. Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and in the temple courts, he found people selling cattle and sheep and doves and others sitting at the tables exchanging money. Now, right away, um, what you're, with him cleansing the temple, um, this is the fulfillment of Malachi chapter 3, 1 through 4. It's the fulfillment of the, that prophecy. The Messiah would come and cleanse the temple. Malachi 3, 1 through 4. Um, you also need to know that well over half of the Jews of the time lived outside of Jerusalem, and so they would have all been coming in, all right? They all would have been coming in. They would have been exchanging different currencies to make sure that they had the currency that they needed to buy some type of sacrifice. That's what this is alluding to. That's why there are people sitting at tables exchanging money. Well, Jesus sees it. He makes a whip out of cords, drove all from from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins and the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who sold the doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. And his disciples remember what was written, zeal for your house will consume me. All these people are coming from far off. Some of them are coming from a long way away. And they do not bring a sacrifice. And they're coming to buy a sacrifice, to make a sacrifice, to worship and to honor God. To worship and honor God. There was even a, 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 a tax to be able to go into the temple. Typically, it was half of, half of a shekel. And here they are, and they're paying money and to be a part of this. They want to come and to worship. And so Jesus steps in, and he sees what they had made the Father's house. They had made it a market. And they probably, it seems as though they had justified the fact, hey, we're going to make a bunch of money, these, these people who are coming from out of Jerusalem, and they don't have... Um, 
all the different sacrifices that they need. And so what we're going to do is we're going to upmark, we're going to charge it up, man. We're going to make sure, right, we get our money's worth. And they just, they knew that they could get away with it. Hello, groceries today, right? They're like, hey, groceries are gone at 25%. I just read this. I'm like, 25%? Inflation's nine. How does that math work? Well, people are paying it. Well, that's what they're doing. They're just going to, they're going to, man, we can take advantage of people. We're going to take advantage of people. And he saw people stepping into the father's house and taking advantage of others. And he was infuriated. Why? Because he saw people using the relationship with the heavenly father, using the temple for personal gain rather than for godly pursuit. He saw people stepping in and using something that was really about godly pursuit, the temple, stepping in to worship him. Now remember, he's about to reveal that he is the temple. And yes, I believe that we're taking advantage of Jesus Christ on a regular basis. We're using him for false things. God, will you just do this for me? God, will you just do this for me? God, will you just do this for me? And we all know that God doesn't owe us anything more than what he's already done through his son, Jesus Christ. I would, and I know that it says ask and, and, and seek me out and those types of things, but we rip them out of context. I would challenge you to go for a week without asking and simply seeking God. And he's angry, and the anger is directed to those who are selling and handling the currency. Jesus could see through the, the, the veneer of their faith that it was artificial, that they were one thing right now and they're really something different inside. John chapter 2, verse 25 tells us that he knows what's in every one of us. John 2, 25. It says, word for word, he needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. He knew their heart. He saw their heart in terms of how they were handling the temple and taking advantage of other people, and he was furious. He revealed his power that he could do more for others than they could ever do for themselves, and yet then he steps into the temple and he says, what are you doing? What are you doing? In Matthew chapter, uh, Matthew chapter 21, verse 13, Matthew 21, 13, he says the following. He, says, he steps in and says, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. He sees this. He just couldn't handle it. He said, what are you doing? They're making way too little of the Father's house. Now, that's what I want to make sure you hear, because now uh, they were making way too little of the Father's house. I think too many of us are making too little of the Father's house. The temple, right? Well, now, that's why it's so important for us to recognize that in John chapter 2, he then says, he's letting them know, I'm the true temple. He steps in, and he says, says, the Jews had looked at him. And I was like, what sign do you show us to do such things? And he says, like, listen, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. And you know they just mocked him. They're like, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. You think you can raise it in three days? They didn't get that he was now the temple. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. There's two temples here. You had the physical that is mentioned five different times in this passage. And then you have his physical 
You, you, you have the, I'm sorry, you have the physical, which is mentioned five times. Then you have Jesus' body, which is mentioned four times. And he's saying, no, I am the temple. Remember, the purpose of the temple was the presence of God. So we had the presence of God. Scripture lines up with this perfectly. We had the scripture of God for all who profess faith in Jesus Christ living within us. And yet too many of us are treating that as being too little. We're thinking and treating Jesus too little. We're we're looking at that and not recognizing the power of what that means for us. Too many of us are treating our faith just as the Jews did. See, the Jews at the time, they measured their faith by what they saw as being tangible that they could touch with their hands. Here's the temple. What do you mean? It took us 46 years to build this back. You're going to raise it up in three days? They always measured their faith on what they saw as being tangible. Rather than measuring their faith based on what they knew God could do and how God could work in their lives. They couldn't grasp that God was there to do more than simply patch the hole in their tire, that he was to give them a new tire. They couldn't grasp that maybe instead of just God helping you get over a difficulty in your marriage and hopefully to move beyond it, that God could give you a new marriage with one another so that two flesh may become one. And that then all of a sudden that marriage, you're not holding against them something that they did decades ago or years ago or months ago. Or that all of a sudden you can have a career in which instead of taking advantage of other people, you're lifting them up. Jesus knew what was in their heart. And he knows what's in our heart. So here he is. He's like, man, I'm going to reveal myself. I'm going to cleanse the temple. And then I'm going to reveal to you that I am the temple. And that I dwell within you. And I can do far more for you than you recognize. Isn't that what you want your friends to know? That the power of Jesus in their life means that that they can experience far more than they could experience apart from Jesus? Isn't that what you want all your friends to know? That the power of God working within them is going to do more than they could do for themselves? It'll be different than what they've ever thought of being able to do, but it'll give God glory and God honor, and it'll be honoring to the temple, which is Christ living within us. That's the power of the resurrection. And so then we recognize that we can, be, we can be a new tire. We don't have to keep taking the same broken self before Jesus and hopefully him fixing us enough to be able to walk again tomorrow. He can just give us a new life because of the strength and the forgiveness and the grace that we can encounter. Anybody ready for a new life in Christ? So, Lord, I'm praying that we would know what it is for you to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. God, we're praying 
that we would fully comprehend the notion that not only do you come to patch brokenness, but you came to give us a completely new life. There's more to be had in you than we could ever know. May the marriages and the relationships and the friendships and the people in this room understand that. In Christ's name, amen.